Okay, so um, I, I've noticed that the it's rich, the um, the schools in Canada has recently become a very hot topic in the media, and yeah. I would say that I imagine or speculate that the Canadian survivors already know. Uh, where the graves are or know a certain amount about the graves and they weren't listened to for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And that's what's happened here. Today I'm here with Maureen Considine and Catherine Coffey O'Brien. Maureen is an activist with the Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance and Catherine works alongside her as a survivor's representative. As a survivor of Bessboro herself, Catherine's role involves direct consultation with other mother survivors. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you both today and if you're ready, we can get started. Sure. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So first off, Catherine, if I could just start with you, can you talk about your experience in the Besborough mother and baby home and kind of how you managed to like leave that while you were seven months pregnant? Um, well, I, I just give you a brief um, r- roundup of us. First of all, I'm a member of the traveling community mm-hmm. and I would be called an intergenerational survivor um, because my mother was in the industrial schools and other institutions before me and then I was in an industrial school and like we just said I was in Besbra. Now I'll answer your question. Um, I was put to Besbra by, I was referred by a social worker employed by the department, by the health board at the time. I was given the, I was told that I was going to be in a self-contained um, apartment. I would get help with baby equipment, etc. I'd be able to go back to education, etc. When I got off the train, there was a nun waiting for me and she knew that I was an ex-pupil. That's their language. Ex-pupil means like you were one of the convent girls. You came from one of the other institutions and she knew my full name. She knew everything. And um, she told me what my duties were when we were going up the car to Besbra. I would be manual work, kitchen work, altar work, cleaning, brass, things like that. So to answer your question, how I got out of Besbra, well, what happened was, well, I had decided, and I don't make any apologies for it now, that I was not going to be, um, I was called into the charismatic room by the same nun, and she told me if I had a boy, there'd be no problem, he'd be adopted, it's a lovely family. If I had a girl, she would end up in the same institution that I was in. Now, whether my child was a boy or a girl, I had no intentions of giving my baby away, mm-hmm. give, for them to take my baby away, because we then you, we girls like us never gave our babies away; they were taken. Mm-hmm. So then, what happened was, I was trying to, I was from day to day, moment to moment, I was trying to find a way of leaving, getting out of there. Because remember, the girls that were from an upper class. They were never allowed outside the gates and the likes of me. I was sent into town once a week to post off envelopes. Um, one of them was full of postcards to, and I was to collect checks and pick up tuck stuff like sweets and things for the girls that, that, were, that were being paid for privately by their parents. So I decided that the next time I was doing that, that I was going. But I had no money, I had no support, I had no resources, but I knew I was going. And another girl 
that was in there, um, she kind of figured out what I had planned. I didn't discuss it with anyone, but she knew I was up to something. And she said, please bring me with you. And I managed to get her with me. And a taxi collected me like it always did. And brought me to town. And we were supposed to go back to that to, to where the cab would pick us up. But we didn't. I just posted off the envelopes like I was supposed to. I took money from the top money with the checks and the back into the envelope. And I posted them back up to Besbra and we ended up hitchhiking into another county to, to get away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how would you say your experience has impacted other mother survivors with, within the Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance? Uh, um, I will be honest with you, we, and I would say this for the record, without Maureen Constantine being working shoulder to shoulder with me, I don't know if we would have got this far, as far as we've got. To answer your question, I know if a lot of the women that came, that were in institutions, they call it the diaspora. Women that were would have been raised in industrial schools and then boarded out as hard labor, and then ended up and a lot of the time it was it was it was rape. Uh, ended up being because we got no like we weren't taught sexual education. There was no contraception in Ireland. We were the we were the lowest end of the social realm. And to answer your question, especially for the women that will be marginalized, they. I was I was in the shadows for a long time and I used to go to what they call in Ireland commemoratives where you go to the institution back to the grounds and they used to hold these commemoratives but the mothers were always in the shadows it was like they were just standing in the shadows and no one was no one would even speak to them salute them and I I I, of course, I was younger than a lot of the older mothers, and I got taught to the older mothers, and then I started listening to their stories, and some of them, they happened to have children that died in Besbar, and I said, I said to them, why haven't any of the organisations helped you? Why, I mean, some of these organisations are getting access to funding, like, why aren't they helping you find out where's your baby buried? And in Ireland, you know, death and the ritual of burial, it's very, especially you know, it's it's in any culture, it's very important. So anyway, how we have one sentence between all of us. The day of bowing is gone. And we don't want history repeating itself in Ireland regarding the attitudes towards young women, especially vulnerable young women. And we did. And I don't know. You'd have to ask some of the, the older women what they, maybe Maureen would be able to answer better than I would. I like there was we knew there'd be no heroes in any of this. We we faced constant constant struggles. We do it in our own time. We are not we're not we're not involved with any of the mainstream advocate groups. Where they don't represent us. They've never they've never even consulted with us. They never even got our consent to say they were speaking on our behalf. So maybe Maureen, you could answer that better than I could. Yeah, if you want to jump in, Maureen, you can. Sure. Um, I, I think what the mothers get out of talking to Catherine is that they know they'll be speaking to someone who believes them. 
And sadly, that's not always the case. And like, even in advocacy groups, the misogyny and the, I suppose the perception or, or the kind of idea of motherhood in Ireland is, is Marian, it's Marianist. Um, there's Marian grottos all over our city and countryside and um, Marianism is, is something you grow up with. It's an ideology you grow up with. So um, particularly for women who Catherine encounters are the most marginalized, a lot of them will have had more than one pregnancy in a mother and baby home. And the nuns used to call them repeat offenders. And they deal with the worst misogyny because not only were they repeatedly offended against, as in they were usually rape victims uh, or usually someone in a very vulnerable situation, but then on top of it, you have people questioning their purity and how they managed. I've heard phrases like, I understand how it happened once. I don't know. I don't understand how it happens three times. I've heard very misogynistic descriptions of these women and, and actually should say girls because there, so many of them were underage. They, you know, every time Catherine introduces me to a new mother, they'll they'll tell me something like, "I was only sixteen. I was only 17. And um, once they start talking about it, they become that seventeen-year-old again. The trauma is very present. It's very intense. And yeah, I think what they get out of it when they talk to Catherine is they don't feel like they have to convince her and they don't feel like they, they feel like they're talking to somebody who understands their situation instead of somebody who they have to explain, oh, I had nowhere else to go or things like that, which, which often they do find themselves having to explain themselves. Um, so yeah, I think that's what they get out of talking to Catherine. Plus, um, without, without it being uh, academic or formal, Catherine is, um, a feminist in in the regard that she would immediately tell them it's not their fault and they badly need to hear that too so uh catherine i think that clears up by what they get out yeah. of the country also i suppose they know they know through catherine that when it comes to maureen the academic their views come first this is not about a direction I want to take it in. If they tell me that this is the thing they care about, and at the moment it is, it is the burial place of the children, then that's the thing I'll work on. Mm -hmm. And if, if tomorrow they turn around and say they want to go after their rapist, then that'll be the thing I'll work on. Mm -hmm. You know, if they never want to go after their rapists, and that's fine too, because it's very traumatic. None of this trauma has been healed. On top of it being a trauma of the time, it's been compounded by shame and secrecy and a high level of brainwashing that if they ever told anyone that mm -hmm. it wouldn't go. So when they tell Catherine, they're, they're being very brave. But when they go beyond telling Catherine and they go to somebody outside of the system, then they've really, um, you know, I suppose, found their own courage as well. Um, because to speak to that girl, which is what they call me, um, they, I suppose they have to know that I too am not going to wrong them. Um, it, that's a phrase we would use in Ireland, wronging someone is doing wrong by them or telling lies about them. Um, and I would never wrong them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what else is your group? You mentioned right in like you work on what 
the people want to want to uh, go for. So you mentioned the burial grounds and working on that. So what is your group doing to kind of get them recognized and memorialized right now? Okay, so um, I, I've noticed that the it's rich. The, um, the schools in Canada has recently become a very hot topic in the media. And yeah. I would say that I imagine or speculate that the Canadian survivors already know uh, where the graves are or know a certain amount about the graves. And they weren't listened to for the last mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40 years. And that's what's happened here. And they're gaslit and they're dismissed. And it's things like, sure you know she's over the top or or he he's making it up or and they don't remember properly or none of those children were buried on site they were all buried up in the local cemetery etc 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 and just gaslit and then um any any kind of tools that an abuser can use against a person so their credibility their education standard different things like that are used against them so their memories are not considered enough. So I go off and I find documentary evidence. And I think that 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 might have helped in Canada. I don't know, but um, people need, if if people want to support survivors, they listen to them. If a survivor says, I'm convinced there's a grave on this burial ground, I once attended a, a burial when I was a child, or I saw a burial out the window, even though they wouldn't let us go or whatever they say then you can be sure there's a burial ground on site. The next question is, was it documented? Uh, the religious orders will document it, but in Ireland, we, we really don't have much hope getting access to their archives. Um, but the civic orders, so the state in some form, will also have documented these places. And I suspect in Canada, much like Ireland, they were well documented. Um, and though yours is colonialist in, in its history and ours was more of a theocracy, um, post-colonial theocracy, but a theocracy, I think that those records will exist. Um, and the reason they'll exist is because nobody ever thought that the likes of Catherine or the indigenous survivors would come forward. Nobody, as Catherine said, they didn't bank on us coming out and they didn't expect these survivors want to come forward and to to get traction, to be believed, to have people come come along and be good allies. So if you're in a position to find documentary evidence, if you know anything about map making or um, or map data, or map, map archiving, that's what people should do. And then also different local government records like health boards and um, that kind of thing, because every child will have been paid for. We call it headage, um, it's per head, you know. Um, so every child will have been paid for um, and there will be a record of their existence. Um, so that would be the way to find, to help them find them. And um, I'll not even help them find, back them up. That's what I'm trying to say is, is back them up and do it with archival evidence if you can find it. And if you can find it, like we, we wrangle around the different political structures. So. The Besborough uh, mother and baby home site where, where 900 plus infants and children died and uh, their burial place is unmarked. We can't do a geophysical survey on such a site because we don't own the land and land ownership in Ireland is 
a pretty big deal as the post-colonial hangover. So that wasn't an option. But we do regularly visit there and it's technically trespassing. And after two years of doing it now, they've just accepted our presence. But at the start, it was it was a problem. Um, Catherine, I'd be embarrassed about me bringing this up. You won't be embarrassed, will you, Catherine? No. I, you are to be there since you were uh, people. <laughs> we got we got locked in once to the Bellsborough Mother and Baby Homeland, and um, I was standing there with Catherine, who had who had run away something like thirty years before. Was it twenty five years before? That I can't was, remember. It was nearly thirty years. Nearly thirty years, <laughs> and I was standing there as as her like and I joke but as as the bookworm like basically and we were locked in and though we could have physically gotten out my car was locked in too so we were we were imprisoned in Besbra and um it was a bit overwhelming in terms of the irony because a former Franciscan monk locked us in there and I had to phone the guards who then phoned a local health facility who somehow had the keys to the gate and they unlocked it and left us out so yeah. Um, I imagine in Canada there might be similar systems where uh, ownership and complicity. There, there are people complicit in these organisations and in the in the ownership of the lands. Um, even if they're no longer in religious hands, they will still. In Ireland, they're nearly always social care, so hospitals, uh, social work, fostering services, adoption services, things like that. Um, sometimes work with people who have addictions and other things like that. So you're you're still encountering some authority whenever you visit those landscapes, mm-hmm. um, and and then it's shifting in the in the populated areas to wanting to redevelop them into hotels or housing or things like that. Yeah. So you mentioned that they're kind of just tolerating you guys, or they're just used to you guys when you go visit the land. So why like what why aren't they helping I guess essentially that's a very broad question but why aren't they doing anything to kind of help you guys memorialize these grounds and mark these graves we are we're very careful with the word memorialize Mm -hmm. I'll tell you why but we only we only deal with Besbra Besbra is unique in its own way because the mothers who have babies buried in Besbra, there are, are there are other mothers buried in Besbra as well. They don't want exhumations. They want where the children's burial ground, when we discovered the map, for that burial ground to be marked, preserved and protected. Um, tolerate, yeah, at the beginning it was tolerate, but then they realised that, I, I think along the way they figured out that we were there for the long haul that we were always very respectful and mindful when we went in there, because as Maureen said, the old convent has been utilised, it's been adapted for various services, and there are very sensitive services in there. So we've always been very measured in our approach when we go in. And like, why aren't, you asked the question, why aren't um, they, why weren't we being helped? Uh, well, to be honest about it, um, you probably don't realise this, but in Ireland at the moment there's um, there's a very serious situation. Situa- the former minister, um, Catherine Saponi, has been appointed into a position, and she was over the mother in over the mother and baby inquiry. And to be honest about it, the mother and baby inquiry 
if it if it had been handled properly and grassroots survivors were were consulted and were were included in any aspect of the inquiry, Minister Zappone, the former Minister Zappone, she did have at one time she could have made a very big impact regarding and, and, and Maureen was talking about the misogyny, counteracting the misogyny in this country regarding this history mm -hmm. and the narrative of it, but she failed desperately. And it was very disappointing that the former minister Zamponi failed desperately. Her legacy is that it's very negative in Ireland because it's only prolonging, like country to common belief, we want closure. What we want for Besbra is the, the children's burial ground to be marked, preserved and protected, some benches and a wildflower meadow. Mm -hmm. That's all. Like, and at this stage, we were kind of, I, I think we were very lucky that maybe we didn't get help. I think Maureen coming on board was a gift to us and the other mothers played our part and we have our own we have our own approach on things and there's no um we're, we're not, like i said at the start of this conversation we're not involved in any organizations because another thing that bothers me and maureen you could jump in here at any time i don't like the commodification you said why didn't anyone help us we've had academics and don't get me wrong i work alongside an academic maureen's an academic but we've had other academics and they're out there on podium speaking. Like there was a conference in Boston in the Jesuit Center and about, about justice and healing, about institutional abuse. But actually we weren't even informed of those conferences, not alone invited to hear. It was like, it's like there's so, some organizations think they know what's best for us without ever asking us or consulting with us or yeah. consenting with us. But in saying that, I will say one thing, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, the new Minister for Children, he's done more in the last year and a half regarding communicating with the grassroots survivors, the mothers, and there's been more done in a year and a half than there was done in six years when Minister Zapponi was in office. Mm -hmm. And I have to be very fair on that. So we are trying to answer your question, maybe... Maybe it was maybe it was destiny that we didn't get help from outside factors because you don't know if, if to be honest about it, there's an awful lot of commodifying this agenda. There, there, there are careers made out of our history. Yeah. And to be honest about it, like there was a document brought out a while ago. My name is attached to the document about the traveller aspect because I'm an ethnic minority in Ireland. And I wasn't even asked yeah. that my name be attached to the document. But all of a sudden, it was thrown in there because, you know, well, you know, it'll give a bit of uh, weight to the document that we've covered. No, like, don't come out of fire misery. Let us work towards closure in our terms, in our way. And the memorialization, we're very careful with that word because, to be honest about it, someone's idea of memorialization who's never been through the institutions might not be what the mothers want. Yeah. Am I making sense here, Maureen? 
Yeah, like I would just say to back you up that um, we have a problem with memorialization and grave marking being conflated together. Yeah. Uh, grave marking is, I suppose, it's culturally something that's quite universal. We like, like human beings like to acknowledge the dead. Mm-hmm. But as, as well as it being culturally universal, memorialization pre- presents a difficulty, especially if it's state led commemoration because then the state is saying that happened it's done now yeah we're finished we're out and that's why when you say the word memorialization in Ireland you might have 10 survivors immediately turn around and go you're not memorializing this issue but when you say grave marking they're like please help us mark as many graves as possible so they're they're very distinct um Mm -hmm. categories um for that reason and also then memorialization would would speak to wider experiences so we in Ireland we out in Northern baby homes we have the women who survived it um we also have the women who died there in Besborough it's 21 women who died there while incarcerated some of them I'm looking at a spreadsheet one woman did 56 years for having a baby in indentured servitude and she died there she's buried in an unmarked grave yeah Um, so we have the mothers, we have the babies who died, we have the babies who lived, and the babies that, that lived, we have the fostered, the boarded out, boarding out is like, it's like being sent to a family to be their servant, essentially, um, it's a type of fostering, but the children were treated as servants or farm labourers, horrible stories about how they weren't allowed to sleep in the house or eat at the table, oh. uh, so in the shed with the animals and they weren't allowed to eat at the table with the family and then if there was a sexual predator in the family they had that to deal with too so you have those people and then you have the adopted people who had a variety of experiences being adopted too like for example a lot of adopted people will find out later that they were actually ethnically travelers so in Ireland travelers are are as white as you or I so it's not that they're racial um markers can be identified just by looking at them so mm-hmm. it was part of the assimilation process of travelers to get traveler babies off traveler women and get them into settled settled families set by settled i mean that's what people who live in houses are called in ireland they're called settled um, and it was a form of assimilation and again you've seen this in canada mm-hmm. and I'm not an expert in Canada, but I remember seeing a film about uh, Australia and about how the paler babies were taken first, Mm -hmm. paler's children and babies were taken because they could be integrated in a way that uh, denied their genetic heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, The really big problem here, and it's untouched in Ireland, the traveler ethnic assimilation issue is it badly needs um, people to look at it who don't have an agenda people who want to build a career off it, people who want to just like honestly analyze the data and find out what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, of the boarded out children, some of them will have gone to industrial schools. Mm-hmm. Catherine mentioned industrial schools. I think he called them boarding, the, the religious boarding schools. Well, we call them industrial schools because they date back to the 19th century and they were designed to teach children skills as well as a place of confinement. And again, it was always the unwanted in society. So the illegitimate, um, occasionally orphans, but but only very occasionally. Uh, 
often when married couple, when a poor couple who are married ha, um, had one member of the couple die, so say the father dies and the mother lives, the mother then has no means of support. So she would be pressurized to put her children into an industrial school because they would be supported there. And she would be convinced that they would be supported there, especially historically. Mm-hmm. So you have a variety of experiences. And then on top of that, you have mothers who gave birth in mother and baby homes because uh, they were sent there because they weren't married, who were then subsequently sent to Magdalene laundries where they spent the rest of their lives washing the public's laundries for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So we had a fully integrated system. I don't, I, I'd be interested to find out in Canada was it more than the schools? Um, like were, were there baby farms essentially? Um, and was there somewhere where they combined women who were still fertile, who could potentially produce more children and, and they were trying to stop that. Like a type of birth control that was socially acceptable to Catholics, stop mm-hmm. them having sex. Don't give them birth control, but stop them having sex. Mm-hmm. And then later, in the later period, when we had more kind of contraceptive control, particularly the 80s, 90s, um, you have a situation where women were being released back into situations where women and girls were being released back into situations where they were incredibly vulnerable to another pregnancy by rape or incest or things like that. And I think the idea there, I suspect, was more children for adoption because by that stage, people were paying significant sums of money to adopt children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I can relate to First Nations because um, like I had an aunt, my mother's family were court ordered in and they were court ordered in by the cruelty man. The cruelty man, he would have worked for the local help, the local health board. My aunt died in an industrial school of a disease, a heart disease related to malnutrition. And we have our own language, we have our own culture, our own identity. And I can relate to, Anyone that, that comes from the First Nation background that was raised in, I actually, boarding residential um, boarding schools, actually, for me, that, that word, I don't know what it is for First Nations, how they handle that word, but here in Ireland, as Maureen, we call, we call them industrial schools. But when you are from a completely different culture and you have a different set of values and a different way of life and you're removed from that, like I remember being in the dormitory, looking out the skylight window, going over the words of my own language to hold on to that. And when you come out of these places then, and like like if you looked at Charlie Hockey's um, 1967 white paper, the solution to the high tolerant problem was to absorb us, absorb us into mainstream society. That's the wording in, in the Charlie Hockey document. He was um, he was a minister. He wrote this document about travellers, high tolerance. I don't like the word high tolerance. No, but, it's um, a drug. Yeah. It is true, yeah. And now, now, it gets, in this country, at this present moment, like, I remember coming out of these, out of these institutions and I floated between two societies. I was neither settled our traveller, and then as I grew as I grew into the woman I am today, 
to deny my mother or my grandmother from me would be wrong. I was born, my grandfather was a tinsmith. He worked with metal with his hands. I am, I'm from, I came from a traveller. I came from the womb to the tomb. I was born a traveller and I'll die a traveller. I fought to keep that. They used to cut our hair, remove earrings. They would beat you if you spoke in your own language. I remember one day I was um, going down the corridor of the institution and um, I got a rap into the back of the head, a slap into the back of the head, and I was supposed to start walking like a knacker. Knacker is another derogatory word for traveller. And you were beaten if you spoke to your own people on the street. That's if you were brought down into the in, into town for something, because you'd be with the nuns. They, I remember I remember several things there. I relate to First Nations because when you own and in Ireland, we'd have our own plans, we'd have our own language, our own ways. And when that is taken from you on purpose, it's something you can never, like, our destinies forever, forever changed. And for the most part, it was, it was as Maureen and I often discussed this, this was all compounded by the church and the state. This was all orchestrated, like, this wasn't like, you know, charity and, you know, trying to help people. This was all orchestrated. It was a commercial entity for the Catholic Church. And for the state, it was a kind of a hand-washing exercise. After the British left, it was the case of um, McQuaid and de Valera worked very closely. If you look at our constitution, it enshrines, it's one of the very few constitutions that enshrines the Trinity. The Trinity of Catholic uh, religion. When you see the first three lines of the constitution about man, woman and child. But I'd be right, Maureen. Yeah, and Marianism. Um... There's, uh, it's it's still there. There's a bit, has it been changed? I can't remember. There's a bit in there about the woman's place being in the home as the mother and. Oh, by the fire, yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's it, it's in the Constitution of 1937, and it it's it is our post-colonial Constitution. And Catherine is right. Our then president, Eamon de Valera, wrote it with the bishops and the main bishop being Archbishop Desmond McQuaid. And they ensured that Marianism and a Catholic ethos was enshrined in our constitution. Um, so I think, again, this might be where we vary from Canada. So we, we, we got, we became post-colonial. We, we, got, we got our independence in the period between 1916, roughly speaking to 1932. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland at least, gained, gained its independence. And we were incredibly poor um, as a nation. And this is often used as an excuse for what went on. But because we were incredibly poor as a nation, we were left very vulnerable to the offer of help from the Catholic Church. And that offer of help in, involved schools, hospitals, um, and then what they call the asylum system. And the asylum system is the mother and baby homes, the industrial schools, the Magdalene laundries, and if you couldn't be kept in line, the mental asylum. So um, we were very vulnerable to that and their help was accepted to the extent, some people try and say we're post-theocracy, 
But I would strongly argue against that because um, I'm 30, I'm 37 years of age and I was educated by the Sisters of Mercy in the 80s and 90s in, in Bayfield Cork, a relatively poor community in Cork. And that school is still in Catholic patronage. And the vast majority of Irish schools are Catholic patronage. And what that means is that the board of management is made up of the local priest, the teachers, uh, some teachers, uh, some community representatives and the principal. But there's always a priest on the board of management. And the ethos is always Catholic, meaning that Catholic teaching must be taught in the classroom. And if your parents want you to opt out for it, they can do things like they can come up to the school for the hour that religion is on and take you out of the classroom. But you cannot be put, depending on how cooperative the principal is, you can't be put in another room and given you know, some, some activity to do because that, that would be facilitating you and they want to obstruct you. Um, and you also, um, I, I remember there was in my class, very strangely, I think, um, and I can't even remember where she was from, but there was a girl who was Jewish and we only found out she was Jewish because we were all making our first Holy Communion um, in our little white bride's dresses at seven years of age and um, pledging our lives to God. And she wasn't going. And that's when she, I don't know, she told us or the teacher told us, but somebody told us that she was Jewish. And she turned up on the day after mass in, in a nice outfit. And I think that was her parents trying to help her fit in in a world where you had to be Catholic. And so they gave her a nice dress and brought her down to the after church part. Um, but even now, if, if your child, if you and your children aren't uh, Catholic or are atheists, in fact, how the school handles it is, is with tension. So I know of a couple who were told that would their daughter just sit quietly in the class while religion was being taught? They said, yeah, no problem. But, uh, she didn't sit quietly. She asked a lot of questions and um, annoyed the teacher, basically. Um, I have a report from first year so it would have been in about 13 years of age you know it's kind of high school uh from the religion teacher saying I was opinionated and untidy um and, and it's funny looking back on these things you have to laugh but the fact that it's still happening the fact that Catherine's grandchild was recently pressurized her, their family was recently pressurized to get a baptismal cert in order to be allowed to enroll in the school the fact that these things are still happening prove we're not post-theocracy. We still have nuns in healthcare. We still have nuns and priests in um, disabled persons care. They, they totally control the nursing home circuit. Um, addiction services. Women exiting prostitution or sex work. That's a big one. They're called Rahuma and they were the order that ran the Magdalene Laundry. So, uh, you know... We're not post-theocracy and a hundred years after uh, independence, I wouldn't say we're quite post-colonial yet either. There's there's a lot of hangovers, even the way we treat Catherine's people, us settled people treat Catherine's people, that, that nomadism is, is somehow uncivilized and some kind of a problem is, is a big, well, big issue. We're not allowed, like I work full time, which would be seen as unusual in my community. Not by my community, but by settled community. But I work full time in a, a male dominant industry. But when it comes to and you're and 
Like, we can't travel in Ireland. You cannot travel in Ireland because they brought in laws against it. But they, then they created what you call sites. Sites where, like, they're like trailer parks in America. But I call them, excuse the expression, I call them giant reservations. But these mm. now, like, there'd be 30 families living on these sites. And um, they'd be sharing one tap for water. Um, very poor living conditions. And there is money allocated from Europe to, regarding traveller housing, uh, traveller accommodation, housing is not the right word. And it's it's very, it, they, they actually, Europe asked about it about, like you're not, like the local councils weren't drawing down funding drawing this funding down like they were leaving this funding go because nobody and I'll be honest about that nobody a lot of the mainstream society they don't want travellers living next door to them they, they don't want like because it's been ingrained in this society I remember when we were when I was at school they used to take you in the morning they'd take you down and it was called the slow learners class that's what they called it and they would give you a, a crayon and a piece of paper I remember in the industrial school, they were laughing at me because I was reading the book. They, told, they, were, they laughed. First of all, they thought I was vandalizing the book and they slapped me. But then when they, they heard me reading, they were, some of them were sniggering. And then they said, oh, you're bright for your kind. Because normally in my kind, there was no expectations. And the thing is, is that I can keep my cultural identity. I can work in mainstream society. I can, I've beaten the odds. I'm a female, I'm a traveller, I'm a survivor. But at the end of the day, to have your whole history put as a traveller, a woman, and as a survivor of the institutions, and you're looking at the narrative of it, and you're seeing people who wouldn't, by the grace of God, they were never in any of these places. They, and they weren't born into traveller family or anything. But they speak on our behalf constantly, and they cause more chaos than they actually do empower our communities. Would mm. I be right or wrong, Maureen? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen it as a pattern of re-traumatizing, you know, when you've had your autonomy taken away and when you had a childhood of dealing with a, a, power, a power differential, an unequal power relationship. Every time a group that says it's helping you does something to hurt you, they're reinscribing the past trauma of what the nuns or the priests did when they told you they were helping you. When they took you away from your family and said this was to help you, or when they took away your language and said this is to help you, I see it the same in the professional advocacy groups who say, um, we're not going to listen to you, we've decided this is the route to justice and this is the path we're going down. And, you know, um, it, it ranges from... Uh, I suppose victim blaming, which is done quite subtly and in the background, it's not necessarily done out in the open, although sometimes it's done on social media, victim blaming to just pure denialism and they learn that from the state, as in you just pretend people who don't agree with you don't exist, and they did learn that from the state, definitely. Um, absolutely, I think, I think that's how I'd describe it, re-inscribing re the past experience, like just repeating it. Um, over and over again and in some ways that seems to hurt you more because you're very resilient people and you you know survivors survivor is the right word you've survived so much that it kind of makes the rest of us realize like you know 
my bad day isn't really a bad day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, when these bad things happen, when when people who are supposed to be helping you reinscribe that past trauma and past abuse, it really triggers the survivor population. And I can see rooted back in that old trauma. And it's because somebody mm-hmm. who said they were helping you actually harmed you. Um, and it really yeah. needs actually really needs to stop. Mm-hmm. It's good in Canada to see what's happening there regarding the re- when, regarding the tribes. And like yeah. I said, I don't know enough about um, what's going on over there. I've been reading about it, but we have a lot in common, travellers yeah. that were in the institutions, because when we came out to our own people, and remember now, we come from clans, and you have a short haircut, because that's what they did to you in the schools. And you speak a certain way, like your own people don't want you for like for the first like it's like a gladiator pit. You're for the first couple of years you're not you're not seen as one of your own people because you're you you look to them you're you're an alien you're 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 one of the the home fools that's what we were called. Mm-hmm. You won't want to buy your own and you won't want to buy mainstream society sometimes and then it was very so I learned to be very resilient where I depended on myself and I depended on myself when it came to educate myself and empower myself I didn't know anything at the time about feminism and Maureen and I often laugh about that now but I didn't know anything about feminism I didn't know about autonomy all I knew was that I had to go against the grain I had to I for me as a woman I wanted to break the cycle in different ways I wanted my children to have a better life I wanted the system away from them. I was scared of the system. The system being the 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 institutions and the services there. I kept far away from them, but I paid a price, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't have had to pay that price, but I did. Now I I like now myself and Maureen. We do uh, Maureen does. We work shoulder to shoulder. Maureen does a tremendous amount of work. We, we, along this journey, we've enabled and empowered so many women that are next to us. Mothers, other mothers. And actually, we have two women of the country now, Emily Maureen, and they are looking at Anmar. And I know, like, I'm, I'm smiling when I say this, and it's very dark circumstances. But we've got two women of the country looking at graves, unmarked graves of the country and asking us for advice about how to go about things. And that for me is, that's, that's ironic. That's like for me, I don't even have the word to apply for that. I'm so proud of them women. Mm-hmm. And they didn't need a professional academic, um, you know, like this is, this is the thing, like they made a decision to do it and they want help, but they didn't have to go to an organization and give anything up for that help. Because I do think that, help from a lot of the organizations seems to be a trade-off. I'll give you help if you give me your endorsement. Mm-hmm. I'll give you help if you say you support our decision to do X, Y, or Z. And, and that's problematic. Um, well, problematic's an understatement. But in terms of the graves as well, I was very interested, Cameron, in um, the Indigenous um, people's decision to exhume and bring them home. Mm-hmm. Um, because in Ireland, we're culturally both both travelers and settled people culturally incredibly suspicious about the dead and and, and, um, 
Okay, and um, where my grandmother is buried has um, is a grave care that grew naturally, so it isn't ordered and in rows. So in order to get to my grandmother's grave, I have to cross three or four other people's graves to get into it. But we have these curb stones around them, mm-hmm. so I do a little kind of balletic dance <laughs> around bones because you don't walk on the dead in Ireland. You just, yeah. you just don't do it. And I think you don't do it in a lot of places around the world. But but these are the things we grew up with. So ex, exhumation is very upsetting conversation to have, especially when we end up describing the condition of bones, especially infant bones. And also, I suppose, how many people will be un, unclaimed? There, there won't be someone come for that body, either because the family no longer exists, doesn't know about the person, all this other stuff. Um, we are talking about a period that began well over 100 years ago in Ireland. Um, you, you, would, you could take it back as far as 1850, realistically. Um, and then, you know, really intensified from 1922 onwards. So we have a academic... Uh, advocacy group who are calling for full excavation of all the mother and baby home sites to get to, for their reasoning being, to get to the bottom of the high debt rate in the mother and baby homes or institutions. Um, But they never called for excavation of the children's graves at any of the industrial schools, and there's a significant amount of dead children, I promise you. And also, it hasn't been called for in the Magdalene Laundry sites where adult women who were kept in indentured servitude died in, um, I suspect from being overworked, um, if not suicides and other things like that. Um, so if in, it, it, become the, it became this debate about the value of human remains. And in Ireland, it's kind of shocking to hear people discuss the value of human remains as evidence when we have such, like, we have some weird rituals around the dead. I mean, some of them are dying out, but like the wake is the big one. Um, it's famous throughout the world. So when you go to a wake, the first thing that happens when you're going into the door to this house is you see a dead body in a coffin with the lid open facing you. And the, the body is facing the door and facing you. So that's that's how you enter. Mm-hmm. And we spend the body singing songs and drinking and whatever. And... I would remember my grandmother having been washed by her daughters after she died and laid out in, on the bed in, in the sitting room and all of us being brought in to see the dead body. I must have been about six or seven. And it's just part of who we are. In some ways, we're very proud of it because we can deal with it. We can deal with death. You know, we can, we can deal with bodies. We can deal with suicides. We can have conversations. And then we're like a contradiction because our suicide rate is extremely high. Our um, our superstitions around graves and things like that is very high. So we're we're engaged with the dead and with the process of mourning and grieving and burial, but then we're also kind of intellectually damaged by colonial values that that tell us that uh, this is this is how you handle death, and it's like you know. You, you don't get hands on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have all these difficulties. And then in the traveling community, they have their own rituals around who they bury with who. Yeah. And it's not my place to, to, to give you that information, but it also involves generally accepting when someone's buried, they're buried and you don't dig them up. Yeah. 
Oh, it is a real difficulty to have this pressure being put on women whose babies died in the institution to be in favour of excavation of the remains, some of which are 70 years old, mm-hmm. to see what's and and sorry, Catherine, I have to go there, but um, we know from archaeological experts, experts who we trust, that infant bones don't survive very long and the ground conditions are important to, to how long they survive in terms of archaeology. Mm-hmm. So what you'd be digging up has limited evidential value, but has a huge amount of intrinsic emotional value. Mm-hmm. So... For us, it, it, it is interesting, and I suppose the difference being is that the Indigenous people are bringing them home, mm-hmm. where the proposal here is to bring them to a lab and study them. So maybe maybe that's where the difference is, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm kind of just to like end on this note, besides getting those graved, graves marked, what else do you think needs to be done to get closure and to bring closure to the people who did survive and yeah just what do you think needs to be done there um i'll answer briefly and i'll hand you over to Catherine. but i i think that the me too movement has taught us something here and it's that people want to tell their stories mm-hmm. and people want to be believed and people don't necessarily have any idea any imaginative ideas around justice because because sometimes wanting justice is just hurting yourself um especially depending on the circumstances you live in but i think people need to be able to tell their stories and the many narratives of what happened in our ireland's religious run institutions need to be acknowledged so um it's another problem we're having in in academia is to is to try and pin the narrative down I don't agree with that. I think there are many narratives. Catherine's story about being a traveller is unique to the traveller's experience. And she's a traveller female. Traveller boys might have had another experience. Uh, we have mixed race children, very, um, in percentage wise, a small amount. And I don't even know if mixed race is the right term, but that's the one we use in Ireland. Um, where they were people of colour in a country that is as white as... Well, basically, black people see each other on the street in Ireland and they salute each other even if they don't know each other because it's like, hey, another black person. We have very few people of colour. And and um, so it was a really big deal at the time to be born mixed race. And um, so that's a narrative. There's a narrative of the poor. Um, people who are taken purely of being poor. There's all these narratives of rape and incest, but also there's these other narratives of consensual sex with someone you loved and you weren't allowed to marry mm-hmm. so I think it I think it's only fair that the many narratives be acknowledged um, and that every story be given the room to breathe that it needs instead of it being too legalistic to pin down to one kind of narrative one story mm-hmm. thank you Maureen I just finished by saying that uh the commodification uh, after Besborough, I would like to see this this whole history in the curriculum, the educational curriculum of high schools and universities, mm-hmm. especially especially in the sociological and department and the social policy department, the universities, and especially the social work department. Um, when people are studying for their degrees, that they actually have to do, they have to do module on this. Mm-hmm. But it, it we hold the narrative. 
we are more than a project. We are more than a commodity to access funding. And we are more than, we are the collective memory. And we are dying. We are dying. We are most staggering. Me as a traveler, like I'm, they call it sniper alley. Excuse the expression. Um, because I'm a traveler, and because I was raised in the institutions and that, my life it's my life expectancy is mid-50s. Mm-hmm. Now, I try to have a healthy lifestyle and that, but that's a fact. That's the average age, mid-50s. Uh, we are, we have poets, we have storytellers, we have a lot of very talented people within the survivor community. And uh, we always said it, Maureen, and I've always said it, it the expression of this history will be done through the arts as well as academia. But when it's done through academia, it'll be done with our input. And we'll decide who's doing it. And because for the simple reason, you asked me earlier on, why didn't anyone help? I kept asking that question too. Why didn't all these advocate groups help? Mm-hmm. Why didn't they listen to the mothers? Why didn't they ask, where the, like Maureen said there, no one asked about the children in the industrial school that died of starvation and beatings. So to, to conclude, what I'd like after this is education, it to be in the education, and also that our community are empowered and enabled, survivor community are empowered and enabled. So our descendants, when I'm long gone, that my granddaughter can go into university with our head up and our shoulders back. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Um, thank you both so much for speaking with me. I appreciate you guys sharing what you know and your stories. So um, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it.